0: Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow with your host, Linda Nazareth.
1: Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. You know, as I record this, we are well into 2021, and our major economic problem is still the pandemic, the pandemic and its offshoots. But that does not mean that the economic issues we had before the pandemic have gone away. one of those issues is technology. You know, technology is great, and it's offering us all these exciting possibilities for the future, offering us possibilities of how to get out of the pandemic. But the reality is that the future being created is going to be one that perhaps will have be an altered reality for workers, or at least some workers. We're going to need all kinds of new skill sets to cope with the future. Some workers are not going to have those skills. Some are, and they're going to be in high demand. So we may be in the situation where we could have workers who are underemployed or unemployed and at the same time, we increasingly not have workers to do what needs to be done, needs to be done to really, you know, cause the economy to move forward. So how do we bridge that gap? Well, our guest today is on the front lines of bridging the gap. His name is Arvind Gupta and he's the CEO of a company called Pallet Inc. It connects companies with talent and also has a a hand in reskilling that talent. So as we move forward, you know, those kind of initiatives are going to matter more and more. Reskilling is going to be a word we're going to hear more and more, hopefully, because it's what we're going to need to do if we're going to fill the labor market's needs. So it's a really interesting topic. It was a really interesting conversation to have with Arvind. Please stay with us to hear it. So, how do we bridge the labor gap being created by technology? How do we meet the needs of industry while not discarding workers with older skill sets? Well, our guest today thinks some of the answer lies in retraining. Arvind Gupta is the CEO of Palette Inc., and he joins me now from Vancouver. Hi, Arvind. Hi, Linda. Well, there's a lot to talk about here, but really, we're talking about reskilling. But before we even get to that, I always like to ask guests about their own careers. How did you get to be doing what you're doing?
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm also a professor at the University of Toronto and, and um, I've worked with a lot of students over the years. I'm noticing that as time goes by, um, people's skills uh, need to be updated more and more frequently. Uh, even in a computer science setting, uh, the types of programming languages we use, the type of tools that we use changes very quickly. And I don't think it's so easy for individuals to reskill themselves. On their own. There's lots of resources available, but learning from experts, um, learning from hands-on exercises is really the best way to pick up new skills. And so we need mechanisms to have a continual cycle of reskilling.
1: Well, tell me about Palette Inc., your company. What's the aim of this?
0: Yeah, so we started Pallet Inc. Um, a couple of years ago. It's a national not-for-profit. And we did it because we noticed that lots of companies are finding it difficult to get skilled individuals in. And at the same time, we see legacy industries shedding workers and downsizing, maybe because of automation, they're becoming more productive. And so we see this gap forming of both a demand for skilled labor and a supply of really good people who, if they had the right skills, could move into these jobs. And we started to understand how to make that transition happen.
1: Let's talk about technology, because this is the fourth industrial revolution, and we're really decades into it at this point. We've seen all these advances. But if you had to look at this and say, how far is there still to go? How would you characterize it?
0: So my own feeling is that we'll never be the end of this technological revolution. Every new technology spans ideas for more technology. But what technology can't do is replace human creativity, human ability to connect really disparate things. And in some ways that's the fun part of being a human being is is having new and wonderful ideas. So technology is a manifestation of ideas we had in the past and we go on and have new ideas. So I think technology and development deployment will wait with us, I think it's been with us um, since human beings started forming communities 30,000 years ago and it'll be with us all into the future. And I think the main thing is, every time we've developed new technologies, it's created demand for humanistic skills, more and more demand for humanistic skills, and I don't think that's changing today.
1: No, I agree with you, but I think with the pandemic, we maybe have to ask, is this next year, two years, five years gonna see more change than we've seen in the last five years or 10 years?
0: Yeah, definitely, we've learned a lot about how we can use technology in novel ways um, because of COVID-19. And a lot of those lessons won't go away. Um, You know, whether it's how we provide healthcare, how we educate, how we work together in social settings, um, you know, do we need to be flying as much as we have been to have face-to-face meetings or can technology substitute for some of that? We've learned a lot uh, through the pandemic. I would say that every time there's upheaval, every time there's been a depression or a war or any other kind of, Major catastrophic event, we learned a lot about how to use technology to build better uh, afterwards. So, definitely, uh, the pandemic has taught us about how we can work more efficiently, more productive, more have more productivity because of technology. And I again claim that will now change business processes and create a lot more uh, demand for skills, uh, skilled people, and more jobs.
1: Well, you work with clients. So you're on the front lines of this. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing? What are the skills that are difficult to find? And what are are the gaps?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, My own background's in technology, so I think I'm more attuned to listening to gaps around core technology. But um, one of the things that I began realizing in 2017 is there's a lot of demand for uh, really high quality professional business skills. And I'll just give you a statistic. Um, In the U S if I look at the tech space, 73% of jobs do not require sophisticated technical degrees. They're business jobs, They're sales, marketing, project management, team leads, all the kinds of things it takes a business to run in Canada, in our tech space is 64%. So we have a serious understaffing and business skills in the Canadian tech space. That's about 100,000 fewer people doing business jobs. So when we talk about where's the big shortage, there's actually a big shortage in people with sophisticated business skills in this emerging sector. And that creates a huge opportunity because if we're shedding workers in some of the legacy industries, and maybe because they're automating, a lot of those people have those core business skills. And now we're talking about recontextualizing the skills We're not trying to train people how to do project management. They know how to do that. We're trying to train them into project management for this new sector. And that's a different way of thinking about reskilling.
1: So let's talk about specific industries. Are there ones that you think would be progressing faster if they had the right people? I mean, is this actually making a difference to economic growth?
0: Yeah. So um, the, the biggest shortage we heard about was tech sales. It's very difficult to find really good people in tech sales. Um, and again, if you compare us with the U.S. and you normalize the two sectors, the, the tech space, we have about 35,000 fewer people.
1: I should sales. say we're talking about Canada. Our listeners are, are broader than Canada. but oh, okay. Great example. Okay, yeah.
0: Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, if you compare, um, you know, there's a huge gap in Canada in tech sales. So now you ask the question, so if you have these kinds of gaps, what can you do to fill them? and Um, There's a great example, right? Uh, Lots of good people doing sales everywhere, but how do you train them to be in the tech sales market where sales are really important to grow your company? And again, think about the fact that tech sales happen globally. You can be in any, you know, you can be a tech company in Estonia, your market will be around the world. So you need to train people in the context of tech sales, how you do those sales.
1: Well, whose job is it to trade them though?
0: So... There's a number of things. Um, of course, the tools that Techspace uses aren't always the same as a retailer might use. Um, you know, they're very heavily into cloud-based solutions and internet tools like Salesforce. Um, lead generation is different um, because your market is often much more global than local. Um, and then overlaying all that is the speed to market. Um, when you're in a manufacturing sector in a hard goods sector. Um, uh, you're not changing your product line every year or every two years. But in the tech space, um, the product cycle, the deployment cycle is very quick. So uh, you have to learn how to work in a in a place where uh, you're constantly coming out with uh, you know the next version of the product. Um, I think the other thing that's a little bit different in tech space is that people want very customized solutions. And so customization is a much bigger part of the sales cycle than it might be. Uh, if you're in a goods producing sector.
1: Now, this is maybe a North American question, but do you think companies do enough to train and retrain and reskill?
0: Well, that is a big conundrum. Um, we know that um, uh, companies used to spend a lot more on reskilling than they do today. I actually think it's a function of moving from a goods production uh, as the main economic driver to services. In a goods economy, you have huge capital expenses. So when you have big cap, you know, if you're building a factory, you're going to hire workers for life because you have to amortize the cost of that factory over 50 years. When you're in a service sector, which is very labor driven, industry changes much more quickly. If your industry is going to change more quickly, it's not clear that you want to put the investments in skilling because workers are more mobile, your industry is more mobile, industry disruptions happening more quickly. So the return on investment is much lower. So I like to think of it not that industries making bad decisions by not reskilling as much, but rather it doesn't pay as much in service-oriented labor-intensive economy resources into reskilling.
1: That's a really generous, nice way of putting it, because what I tend to hear is, well, you know what, I'll train them and they'll quit. So it's not worth it.
0: <clears throat> and that's exactly the point. In a capital-intensive industry, it's actually worth Having the work, because capital is so expensive, you want a stable workforce. In a service economy, everything is more mobile. So absolutely, people will move, which is then you ask the question, who, who, in whose vested interest is it to skill people? And then it becomes a societal interest. Um, you know, because if the worker is going to move from company to company, making sure you have a highly skilled workforce so that all the companies benefit where that worker goes becomes a benefit to society. And that's why I think now governments everywhere are looking for more holistic solutions to the reskilling problem than saying, well, each company should do its own.
1: So do you think government should be doing this?
0: I think, well, I think society is benefiting from this. So society will do it. And government is a manifestation of good for society. So government's gonna have to be involved in thinking about how this happens. Now, how it's paid for is a different question. Um, whether it's up to individual workers to do this, whether we incent workers through some kind of government program, whether government builds part of that infrastructure. One thing to know is that the main drivers of industry now, uh, sorry, main drivers of employment growth are small companies. In the US, 72% of net new jobs are created by the 5% fastest growing small companies. That's a huge amount of economic activity. It's very difficult for small companies to create the kind of skilling programs it would take for them to ramp up at the speed they're ramping up. So now you can ask the question, how does government Um, bring those companies together? How do they listen to the kinds of skills that are needed across these many small companies? How do we create those skilling programs as a common good? So these are really big policy questions we have to answer.
1: What about workers? How much individual responsibility should there be? And are people doing enough?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think back to the fact that even students that we produce in pretty sophisticated programs struggle to keep up with the rate of change. Um, knowing where to go for good quality programs is not that easy. Um, the reality is when you're 40, you're not going to go back and do a, mas- a two year master's degree. You're going to need much more rapid uh, skilling. So I think we need to empower workers to, to get into the space. We need to make sure that whether it's through some kind of um, you know, like a, uh, a government product that encourages people to save money for when they need reskilling. Um, or a system that offers those opportunities, we need to really think about um, what is the infrastructure to produce, what is the right infrastructure to have high quality reskilling programs available? And again, I'm separating out the who pays for it from the fact that we need it.
1: I mean, this is not new. People study for degrees or do things. They've had done that for years. Are we entering an era where everybody will have to do this on an ongoing basis and get their minds around it? I mean, I, I think that's the case.
0: Yeah, I, I think um, you know there are studies that say that if someone graduating today will have between seven and twelve distinct careers through their lifetime. I mean, just think about you know you're going to work for forty years roughly. If you're ten time, you're going to have ten careers. It's every four years you need to learn a whole new skill set to be able to transition to into a great job. I mean, this idea of continuous learning, of continuous reskilling, lifelong learning. It's something that we talk about, but we haven't really thought through how we do it. I, I mean, you have, don't have to go further than any university and just look at the programs they have for 40-year-olds that need to pick up a new skill set. Where are the intensive, high-quality reskilling programs that get them you know, out of one industry and back into a new industry pretty quickly? Very hard to find.
1: I don't even see this as a negative. I mean, I know it's a little bit daunting for people, but it keeps it interesting. And, you know, I think we have to get our minds around this nonlinear career path. Do you think there's a mindset issue here?
0: Oh, I think that's going to be a huge opportunity. I mean, imagine being able to reinvent yourself every few years and to go from one interesting job to the other, and there's this nice transition pathway that lets you learn new things. I think as human beings love to learn, and we love to do new things. And we like to be valued. So, uh, if we look at it the right way, I completely agree with you. This is a huge opportunity. But if you have the infrastructure to create those opportunities, then people will embrace it much more. Right now, it's a scary proposition. You've got a good quality job. Uh, you're a portfolio manager. You lose that job. You may lose your house. Your kids may not be able may not be able to afford to send your kids to university. But if we see it differently, that we believe you can pick up a new skill set at age 45 and be a productive contributor in a new industry sector so you're not worrying anymore about losing your house you're thinking oh what skill do i want to learn next to go and do the next great thing in my life
1: and you bring up workers who are 40 or 45 or whatever every company says that they're totally blind to anything like age or sex or race or whatever do you think that's true (laughs) (laughs)
0: um you know it's really interesting what we've seen at pallet um, when we do these reskilling programs, definitely racialized minorities, uh, women and older workers have a much tougher time uh, making these transitions happen. And we spend a lot of time debating what's causing these kinds of gaps. And, you know, it's really trite to say, well, it must be ageism, sexism, racism, all these things. But try to understand deeply what's going on in psychology of hiring practices, I think is a really interesting question. Um, we've launched various initiatives to see whether the way we're dealing with individuals and companies in our programs change behavior. And we found that if you just run these programs differently, sometimes it actually gets different behavior at the back end. So I think it's a fascinating area. And I'm not trying to dismiss individual hardships that people have. And we know that there is um, there are biases that people hold. So I'm not trying to underplay that, but we also have to think about how do you create mechanisms through those biases and create great outcomes for individuals.
1: And is there a way to use the example of older workers? Like, do you see? You said it's more difficult for them to make the transition. In what's the way around that?
0: So I, I so, so the following is are both true statements. We work with companies that said we need more experienced workers. We just have too many young people. We need people who've been, you know, have had to build big processes. We were scaling up. Right? We need more mature people, have lots of business skills, and we've seen the same companies, not hire older workers. So why is that? And one of the things we found is that so many of the older workers we've dealt with who have come out of you know, good jobs and good industries that are downsizing, have re-geared themselves to entry-level positions that it's not always clear to them how you present the case that they can actually do some of these more sophisticated jobs. And we found that companies are so attuned to hiring at entry levels. There's so many of their hiring practices are about entry level positions that that mid manager positions, they're not quite attuned to how to evaluate somebody who is 45 and has lots of business experience. So there's a mismatch on both sides and you're trying now to bridge that mismatch. And so you need to give both sides strategies to do that evaluation. Because if you've if you never evaluated people at a mid-management position coming out of a totally different industry sector, you don't know how to do it. And if you're a worker and you've been trying to get these positions and haven't been successful, you start saying, well, you know, these companies are really hiring for entry level. I'm going to pitch myself as entry level. So, you know, and that's why I'm saying. You have to kind of go more deeply than just say it's an ageism question. You have to think about what each side is optimizing for, and then how do you change that behavior so you get closer to the match.
1: What about for younger workers? Because the other thing I hear is it's impossible to get in. You get in maybe on a contract, of uh, getting somebody to make a commitment to you is this really not there?
0: Yeah, we've worked with lots of younger workers who say every company wants three to five years experience. How am I ever going to get three to five years experience? Um, I think you know we've done a lot around work integrated learning and co-op to start giving people a much uh, more robust CV. It can still be really hard. Um, one of the things we do at Pallet uh, is that we get companies to come in and do the reskilling. So we don't separate reskilling from the workplace. In fact, we try to create an environment where the companies are skilling in what looks like an industry setting. And we find then the companies by seeing potential workers, their own staff getting skilled and they're contributing to the skilling, they get a much deeper appreciation you know, some of these people are really good. And we find that also mitigates lots of biases, whether it's young, you know, 23-year-olds who are saying, wow, this person's a quick learner, someone who's older, is who knows process really well. Um, you know, we've had some trouble with uh, women coming back after they've raised their families. They've been out of the workforce seven years and their skills are viewed as, as a little antiquated, but seeing how fast they pick up these skills and the fact that you know, they can work in a busy environment. You know they've, they've just brought up three kids and had to work in a busy environment. And now they see that in, in a real setting, in a real business setting, they're able to apply those skills. Um, often this mitigates a lot of these biases. You
1: know, one of the things I worry about, Arvin, is that we'll have these huge disparities going forward. We'll have people who are locked out of the workforce because they don't have the skills. And we'll also have companies that are struggling, which is, Fair enough. Now, I know you're trying to bridge that gap, but are you optimistic about this? Do you think everyone will be included in the next phase of workforce development?
0: I think there's a lot more potential than we're realizing, And whether it's everybody or everybody wants to be included um, is a good question. One thing that we've seen in our programs is attitude matters a lot more than anything else. Um, you know we've taken people who were essentially bartending, um, through our programs, but really a great attitude and this drive to succeed. And now they're making 120,000 in tech sales. Um, and what we've learned is first select for attitude and select for drive. Um, and then the second thing is really encourage people to have that attitude. Um, it's really, it can be, feel really hard, right? It's really, um, um, I mean, your self-esteem, right? You know, you need to have good self-esteem if you're making this kind of transition. And when you're getting rejected from a lot of companies, it can really hurt your self-confidence. So giving people the right psychological outlook on how you go about doing this is just as important as teaching them the skill. And so, you, you know, you got to bring these different things together. Um, frankly, we work with people who got laid off from a very good job and, and essentially, you know, been cobbling together part-time gigs and, and they're losing their self-confidence. You know, the world is not valuing them. And yet they've got lots of transferable skills. And, and when you talk to the companies, this is the kind of person they need. Um, one thing that I'm always really impressed by are people who'd rather work part-time jobs than just collect some kind of government assistance. I'm really impressed at how many people are willing to do that because it gives them a sense of self-worth. And those people do great. We take them through these programs. They do great. They're great really driven to succeed and you know for a company what more do you want you want somebody who's hungry to do well and is thinking a little bit outside the box and has lots of experiences because having lots of other experiences what gets you thinking outside the box
1: Arvind thanks so much for talking to me today
0: yeah wonderful talking with you Linda take care
1: Arvind Gupta is CEO of Palette Inc Well, that's it for today. If you want to know more about Arvind and his work, please check out our show notes. You'll find some links there. And if you want to connect with me, I'm on Twitter at, at RelentlessEco. Now, if you did enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. It will really help people to find us and will help us to continue these discussions around the future of work. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks as always to Stokely Audio for audio production. To
0: learn more about work and the future, and to see show notes, go to theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work and the Future Podcast with Linda Nazareth is a Relentless Economics Production.